Amen. Hey, listen, if you have a Bible or a device, flip over to Esther 2. Esther chapter 2. We are going through the book of Esther. This is a really cool chapter. I love all these chapters, though. This has got to be one of my favorite books in the Bible. Esther 2 is crazy chapter 2. And listen, while you're turning there, I mean, I'm going to say something that's obvious, but I, I, I think to build a framework for us today, it just needs to be said. You are where you at right now because of the decisions that you've made. It's pretty basic. You're sitting where you're sitting, wearing what you're wearing. You got here in the car that you got here in. You work where you do during the week. You keep the company that you do. You, you are where you are because of the decisions you've made, by the best decisions you've made, and also by the mistakes. They've helped as well, right? And, and not just decisions that you have made, but also decisions that others have made for you. Your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents. I was thinking this morning and praying over the fact that my grandfather on my mom's side went AWOL, right? He was a Navy, and this was right when World War II was getting bananas, and he actually went absent without leave the day before he was shipped out to Iwo Jima. That's where he was mortally wounded. But the day before he shipped out for Iwo Jima, he raced across two state lines to propose to my grandmother, right? He went AWOL, and I'm here as a consequence of that. I'm standing here before you because he did that. Decisions made for us, decisions made around us, and decisions that we make, right? All of them, good or bad. And we've made some bad decisions, haven't we? Right? Some mistakes, some drop passes, and, and not just a few. I've made some bad moves, some really bad decisions that felt like they kind of weren't ever going to be redeemable. Maybe even debilitating, career-ending injuries, I guess you could say. But where has God been in all of it? Is God involved in where we're at? How does God see you in the middle of your good decisions and your bad decisions? Is he just watching you and kind of rooting for you, like clasping his hands, hoping that you make the right decision? Or is he making all the decisions and you're just a puppet, right? Is he involved in your life or is he detached? I think what's intriguing to me is how the average Christian, and when I say that, I mean me and you, both of us, how the average Christian views God while peering through the fog of all their decisions, good and bad, decisions made for them, good or bad. And we form this question of, is God interested in working in and through us, or have we made too many mistakes? Have we made too many mistakes? So many mistakes that he kind of just moves us aside and finds a Christian with a better resume, a better batting average, a little less scar tissue, has their stuff together and is able to move forward. I, I used to wonder about that with my life. I played this thing called Little League. And I remember the moment, like most of you who have ever done anything like Little League, whatever the sport is, where you realize that the coach just realized that you're not like the other kids. <laughs> You don't kick the ball as well. You don't swing the bat near as well. You don't even know how to run the bases in order, right? So you get benched or they stick you in right field, right? That's what happens in Little League. Some of you are like, hey, I played right field. This is what that meant. You weren't as good as the other kids, okay? And it's okay. You're on the team but barely on the team, right? That's what it feels like sometimes. Is God interested or is he moving us aside? You see, we're in a series right now that examines how God can seemingly be nowhere, yet is intensely everywhere at the same time. Seems distant, yet highly involved at the same time. 
In the book of Esther, you probably won't find, well, let me just say it this way, you probably won't find anywhere in the Bible a better description of what providence is as you will in the book of Esther. Providence is something that we've talked about the last two weeks just to kind of maybe build a structure of doctrine in your mind for how to look at this book. Providence is that a mindful God is involved in all the details of our cosmos from how atoms collide over here to where raindrops fall over there to where you make decisions, the motives in your heart when you make them. Every affair of mankind in creation, both small or large, he orders, he directs, he moves along, and he does so according to his own inscrutable will because no one is wise enough to counsel him, right? His ideas. That's providence. And he does so according to his plan. He has a plan. A plan. We've actually kind of taken a peek at this plan the last two weeks by centering ourselves in Ephesians 1, where Paul talks about what this plan is. Instead of me just dragging you back to Ephesians 1, I'm going to do it in a different version. We're going to read it out of the message today, right? Now, the message is not, uh, it's, a, it's a Eugene Peterson translation of the Bible, not a translation I would suggest you study intensely from, but what it is helpful for is when you come across a passage that feels kind of wooden, it shakes it up a little bit and gives gives you a different perspective on it, right? Now, it's not all totally legitimate um, in, in how it describes what good theology is, but in, in moments like this, I think it might help some of you, okay? This is what it says in the message or Eugene Peterson's version in Ephesians 1.8. He thought of everything, God, thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, Letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ. A long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him. Summed up in him. Everything in deepest heaven. Everything on planet earth. This is our mega theme for the whole book of Esther. Right? The God is always present and always active. Always moving, even in the ordinary, boring, predictable details of your life. He's right in the middle of all of it. Even when it looks like he's not there, he's very there. Now, there are variations on this mega theme in all of the Old Testament, even in our book Esther. One of them we're going to look at today, and that is that against all odds, the fate of a people, the Jewish people, a marginalized people, the fate of a people inside of a hostile Persian world is reversed. For the bulk of this book, it looks like God is nowhere. And then we find out he has actually been everywhere the whole time, even through their bad decisions and their good decisions, through all of it. So let's look at the story we're going to be in Esther chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 1. I'll pause for a moment, a moment, to maybe kind of unpack a little bit of what's going on. This is verse 1, and this is the word of the Lord for us today. After these things, after what things? Well, he actually had his wife, Queen Vashti, sent out and sent an edict out to the land that every woman, contain your laughter for a moment, that every woman must respect her husband, whether he was respectable or not, right? Edict across the land, it must happen. Chapter 2, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, 
Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of this kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. It sounds crazy when you just read it like that, doesn't it? That this, ha- that this really happens? <laughs> Let it be so. I mean, here's the thing, quick fact. When Vashti was removed, that was in the king's third year of a reign. When Esther is brought into the story, that's in the seventh year. There has been four years that have happened since our passage last week. That's crazy. It never reads like that. It reads like, happened on Tuesday, Wednesday got a new girl, right? That's the way it reads. Four years. What happened in that four years? Well, he went off and fought a battle and lost, right? Remember that party that we looked at last week, this huge party, one of the biggest ever described in the Bible, and it was to get buy-in, it was to get commitment so that they could put a campaign to go back to the Greek mainland and try to beat the Greeks again. It would be their third attempt to do so. It would be their third big, fat failure. So he comes back with his head a little bit low, right? Low capital and leadership, low capital financially. He just kind of comes back with this position where it's going to be very difficult for him to get momentum to go back again. So he does what you do, what humanity does whenever we have a huge defeat staring at us. And we don't know if we can kind of get back up to the plate. You start looking for escapes because life is painful. That's where this king is at. Most historians look at this period of this king's life as one where he escapes into sexual indulgence. That happened right now. Herodotus is the one that wrote the most about it. This king, Ahasuerus, would even have affairs with the wives of his officers. That is what led to his assassination 14 years later. Guy was killed in his sleep because he was escaping into relationships of the men that were around him. I know what some of you are thinking in your mind, Luke, what do I care about that? I think it's important for us if we're going to study Esther What Hollywood will do is it will build a movie on Esther. There's a bunch out there. And it will try to make it a romance. It tries to make this book a romance, like a Beauty and the Beast type of a thing. We have this forlorn king, you know, this Fabio-looking king that just needs a good woman because he's so misunderstood, you know. He's the victim of this feminazi patrol, that horrible Vashti. And if he just had a good woman to set him straight, then everything would be fine. And so in comes Esther, and she's beautiful, of course, and he's reluctant, of course. And it's just this, that's not reality. That's fake news. This king was a total turd. Total turd. Just a big jerk. And if you read historically about some of the things that he did, it's R-rated. I couldn't even say it from the stage. Right? He also wasn't a very skilled leader. He's got all the power in the known world. And what's he doing with it? He's handing it out to people around him who have agendas. That's what we saw last week. Some guy comes up to this king and says, you know what we need? We need an edict so that my wife doesn't do what your wife just did. And out an edict goes, right? This guy vacillates. He's easy to manipulate. He's only interested in what pleases him, only interested in what falls within his best interest. Again, this court, a dangerous place to be. This king, a dangerous person to be close to. He has an unlimited amount of power. He wields, and he's unpredictable with it. Okay, let's go back to the Bible. Look in verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, 
the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, and she was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put into custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Isn't that interesting? No one actually really knows why he said that, by the way. We'll probably get into that next week. Verse 11. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into the royal palace in the twelfth month, which is the month of Tibet in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And just like that, you won't see Vashti's name anymore. That's it. She vanishes from the story for somebody better, right? For somebody better. And as soon as Vashti vanishes, new characters come in, just like any good story, right? Mordecai is one of them. Anytime you read in Hebrew literature, by the way, someone mentioned by name and then a descriptor or two given after that, the first descriptor is what the author's wanting you to recognize with that person. So if it's, you know, Travis, the shoemaker who grew up in Knoxville and was married to this person, what the author wants is for you to know that that was a shoemaker. What's the first thing they mention about Mordecai? He's a Jew. He's a Jew, right? He's a Jew in Citadel. And then it even says he's the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. This means he was related to King Saul, right? That's this guy's bloodline. But he's a second or third generation exile, which means he only knew Jerusalem. Exile defined his existence. It defined it. He never knew anything else but exile, right? And he has his cousin, this cousin named Esther. 
who he's in charge of because Esther's mom and dad died. So they lived together outside the citadel of Susa, which means he was an imperial employee because that was the center of the universe, Susa was. It would be like if they lived in America today, it would be like both of them, cousins, living on Pennsylvania Avenue just a few blocks away from maybe the West Wing or the Capitol building, right? Because if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., everybody that lives within spitting range of that area, they are all imperial workers. They all work with the system of some kind. And at this point in the kingdom, the king has no queen. It's been about three years, in fact, since Vashti has been sent away. So on advice of the advisors, an edict goes out, women are rounded up, because in an empire like this, your life is not your own. My body, my life, my life, my body, those wouldn't be hashtags you'd see flying around in Susa back then. It's hard for us to imagine today, right? But it's true. Josephus is another historian that would actually write on this same time period. He says in this particular roundup, 400 women minimum, 400 women were rounded up and Esther stood out. Think about that for a moment. In fact, don't just think about it, zoom out for a moment. Esther was chosen because of the decisions made for her. Esther is where she is because of decisions that she has made. She is where she is by virtue of consequence in the decisions of humanity. And, capital A, and because this is the way God is weaving his story. This is the way God has decided in his brilliance, beyond brilliance, his inscrutable wisdom to do this. Providentially, her looks open doors for her, right? I mean, God got his hands all over her genetics so that she looks the way that she looks. I mean, consider that. People would look at Esther and say, hmm, she's got a little bit of her mom in her. I remember when they were alive. She's got her dad's jawline and maybe his height, right? Well, how did that happen? Because God was involved in their genetics, in the genetics of their parents, all the way back so that at this time, at this place, a young woman would be born who would be single and young and would look a certain way that according to their values would be considered stunning, right? That's providential care. Esther had as much to do with being beautiful as I did being born in America or with the color of my eye. I don't even know what color my eyes. What color are my eyes? What kind of person doesn't know the color of their eyes? Hazel or green or something like that? They're not blue, right? I had nothing to do with that. Esther had nothing to do with how she looked. This is all according to the plan of God who wanted her to be born when she was, where she was, how she was. Hear me, it's probably worth commenting right here on how you are providentially fashioned in the womb by God himself. Even physiologically, biologically, chemically, you were mindfully made. When we looked at the Psalms a few months ago, we went over Psalm 139, where the psalmist said, you stitched me together. You put me together, thoughtfully, mindfully collected my parts, my biology, in such a way that I came out the way that I did. When no one could see me, when I was buried in the secret place, woven intricately, where God looks at you and says, of all the combinations I could have chosen from, all the options, I opted the way that I did so that you look like you do for such a time as right now. Now, our current political culture is going to defy this notion, the notion that there was design and intent in how you were created, that you were intricately woven. This will be denied. Contemporary thought is that naked science, science divorced and detached 
from intent and design, that it's naked science that has made you who you are, like a lottery. Therefore, there is a vacuum of design and intent, which means you should self-determine. You should come up with whatever you want to come up with. Take gender, for instance. That's a pretty big deal right now. I don't know if you knew that or not. Today, people are struggling being constrained into gender categories, right? This is what Mayor Bill de Blasio said on Twitter the other day to all of the New Yorkers. He says, to all trans and non-binary New Yorkers, we see you, we hear you, we respect you. So starting in 2019, New Yorkers will be able to change their gender on their birth certificates to male, female, or X without a doctor's notice. This is what this means. This means, in his view, and in the view of many New Yorkers, and yes, many in their country, to contain people in a binary gender system, male, female, to constrain and press people into two of those would be seen as disrespectful, devaluing, where we are not willing to listen, we are not willing to see. That's the current temperature. That's the Sousa you live in. Facebook's diversity team, they quit trying about three years ago when they got up to 71 gender notes, 71 tags for gender. And they're like, well, it's getting out of hand. So now it's just a blank where you can self-determine, right? It will get more confusing as time goes on. Listen, if you see gender in light of a providential God who creates with intent and creates with design in the womb, you will no longer land in the majority. That's not a majority position any longer. But then again, if you want to be a Christ-shaped missionary, you're going to have to stop thinking in majority terms. You're going to have to start thinking in minority terms. Because a biblical worldview is a minority position, which means when you walk into a room of 100 people, the biblical worldview you carried in with you, you're the minority now. Wasn't like that 50 or 70 years ago. It's like that now. And that's how you have to think as a missionary. For instance, if your neighbor is transgender, a male becoming a female, or a female by hormones trying to become a male, and they want you to refer to them by the pronoun that they are becoming or choose to be, you'll have two choices, right, or a choice. One is to comply, to bend, so that they don't feel provoked, they don't feel marginalized, and that you win their favor. Or you could refuse, make them feel provoked, marginalized, and you will not win their favor. What do you do? What kind of question is that, right? Here's what kind. It's the kind your kids are going to answer every day. And your grandkids. See, Susa, in our story, is an empire with hostility to anything that runs against its culture. Anything. But it's always Susa somewhere, isn't it? Are we not in the middle of 4th century B.C. Susa? Because it feels like it to me. It feels like it to me. I've said publicly maybe a year or two ago, I wonder within my lifetime if I'll end up in jail for some of the things I'm saying from the stage now. I guarantee it will be considered hate speech. I guarantee it. It'll be considered hate speech. Why do you think there is a move in our guts against being designed and mindfully considered by God even in the womb? You see, I think, I think it's in all of us. I don't think it's just something that a transgender struggles with. I think it's something that all of us struggle with. It's a piece of it in all of us. It is the refusal to want to be under a sovereign. It's a person that wants to be sovereign. It's the struggle that says, who is God to tell me how I'm made? I get to determine how I'm made. You know why you say that? Because Adam said that. 
I should be able to discern what I'm here for. I should be able to make that decision. Who is God to tell me that? See, what I want you to see in this passage is that Esther's beauty speaks of God's mindful care and his plan to rescue his people through her from destruction at such a time as this. And we can draw a straight line from that through the gospel to our life today. Because you are the product of very thoughtful creation by a very mindful God. You were intricately designed for today, at this time, in this place, for the glory of God and for your good. You see, Esther was exactly what they were looking for back then. The Bible says that they were looking for someone better. Better meant single, young, extraordinarily good-looking, and yes, compliant. Compliant. And they found it in her, right? Notice there's no character assessment going on. They're not pushing the Myers-Briggs across the table in front of her to find out if she's got like humor or leadership ability or anything like that. All they really care about is, is she good-looking? Is she good-looking? So after she wins this reality show of a pageant, she's given to this beautification project where she's basically in a day spa for a year. Did you catch that by reading that? Best food, best surrounding, personal trainer, everything you could ask for. The whole purpose of her life is for the 12 months is to look as awesome as possible on the other end of that 12 months. That's what's going on here. It's amazing what you can do to a human body in 12 months too, isn't it? I mean, we've all seen the shows and the videos. You can make somebody look totally different in a lot less than 12 months. And she's gotten a whole year to do this. And they thought she was stunning before she started. The before picture was stunning. I'm curious to how they thought about the after. Now, you've probably noticed, if you're a student of the Bible, and if you're not, that's fine, we're gonna help you out right now. But you've probably noticed, if you are a student, that there's some vital differences between how Esther is handling a vicious empire and how Daniel and his friends did, right, just 50 years earlier. Right? See, Daniel had a few friends, and they were in a different empire just, man, half a century earlier. And they handled things totally different. Right? Two Jews, two very different strategies for living in a hostile world. I mean, their, their feet would hit the floor in the morning, roosters crowing, it's a brand new day, and they have to ask themselves, how am I going to be a Jew and a Persian at the same time today? How do I live in this world but not of this world? These are not antique questions, are they? They're questions we're asking. Very same questions we're asking. How does one live in the world but not of the world? I mean, this was Jesus himself, Jesus' prayer request for you. When Jesus prayed to the Father, that was his prayer request for you. I mean, stay in Esther. Don't turn anywhere. We'll throw this up on the screen. But in John, we catch Jesus praying. And he says, I've given them your word. And the world has hated them, hated them, because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. That means that they're distinct. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So we're, not in, we're in, not of, but we're sent into. That's what we're catching in this passage. And Daniel did this brilliantly, differently. I'll turn there. It's going to be in Daniel 1. You don't need to turn there. You can stay where you're at. But in Daniel 1, verses 8 through 16, if you want to read it on your own. This is basically the, 
the thesis of this whole portion of Daniel. But Daniel, this is another exile, resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. So what he's saying is, is, listen, man, I'd love to help you out, Daniel, but I mean, you're going to come out of this looking scraggly, and all the other guys that are eating the right food are going to look really good, and I'm going to get in trouble for that. You're going to get in trouble, which means I get in trouble. That's what's going on. Verse 11, then Daniel said to the steward from the chief of the eunuchs, had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days, and let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. He's like, hey, just test it out. Just test it out. And so this guy does it. Because providentially, God made that decision with this guy, pushed this guy, formed this guy's mind to where he'd naturally make this decision, and now you've got a decision. They do it 10 days, they look fantastic. And so he basically takes their food and changes their dietary scheme. This is crazy to me. This is crazy to me. I want you to consider that all the other, you know, teenagers, which is probably what they were around this time, or young 20s, they're all not doing what Daniel's doing. They're doing bulletproof coffee in the morning, a little bit of collagen thrown in, right? Branch chain amino acids and protein powder and free-range chicken eggs. And they've got this awesome diet that is dialed in just for performance. And Daniel's like, broccoli, maybe some yams. We'll be fine. Big glass of water, right? And God has favor on them. You know, funny enough, that's the passage that a lot of vegetarians and vegans point to to establish their nutrition. You don't have to have that. That's not what that Bible's talking about right there. You can find another scripture. Besides, it says God had favor on them. It doesn't say the diet saved them. It says that God did it. You could keep being a vegetarian if you want, though. But this is a brilliant passage for us because against all odds, they remained unassimilated and God blessed them. They didn't bend. They didn't comply. Esther, on the other hand, no problem eating whatever's put in front of her. No problem eating the royal food and going through the royal rigmarole. No problem. Mordecai, no problem swearing her to secrecy. Very different. Very different. All right, let's go back to Esther. Go back to your Bibles and go to verse 18. We will finish off the rest of that little reading. Then the king gave a great feast for all the officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus because he was a jerk. That's why. That's what's going on. Verse 22. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of of the king. We see that Mordecai, with a good deed, it goes unrewarded. But it goes unrewarded just in time. 
We're gonna find out. I mean, sure, his name just gets jammed into a footnote and some document that no one's gonna read, except for it will be read later on at an odd time by an odd person. So we're gonna see that. But that's where this part of the story leaves us today. I've just got a question for you, though. Really just a reasoning. Isn't it easy to just bend to the empire? And it's just easier to just comply, to just conceal who we are. feels easier to me. It's, it's tempting for me to do what they're doing in here, just to comply, because then I won't be labeled a bigot. Then I won't be labeled as spewing hate speech. Or, or I won't be labeled as some backwards, barbaric, Bible thumper. I won't, I won't get those labels. I, in fact, I'll win favor. I bet I could win favor everywhere I went if I just bent. There's a temptation for me to conceal and win the favor of everyone around me, and I know it because you have it too. But this has consequences, doesn't it? Bending like this, right? These cousins are making decisions that have consequences, and they themselves are living out the consequences of other decisions. I mean, just consider, a hundred years before this, a hundred years before this, Babylon shows up and roasts Jerusalem, burns it to the ground, carries off all the best, straight back to where? This city, right? Carries them right back. God used the Babylonians to carry out this judgment. That wasn't fate. Babylonians were a tool in his hand. Cart it off. This would affect Mordecai and Esther, just like the decisions your parents and grandparents made affect you, okay? Sixty years later, the Persians would come and destroy the Babylonians. Not that it really mattered for the Jews. New taskmaster, same slavery, right? That, too, is God's handiwork. Read Isaiah. He says, I'm stirring up the Medes and the Persians to go whoop the Babylonians, a new tool to wipe out the former tool. That's what's happening. And then the Persians come into power and they say, hey, any Jew who wants to go home to start rebuilding Jerusalem, you're free to go and I'll pay for it. Pretty good deal, except for a lot of them don't go. Guess who doesn't go? Mordecai and Esther. They're staying in the empire. So Esther is where she is because of past decisions made and the decisions of her predecessors, but ultimately she's there because God has her there. And all of that can be true. All of that can be true at the same time. Hear me, God's providence in our life oftentimes moves through failed motives. Not all of our decisions are very brilliant ones, right? Some of you are going to choose a place to eat lunch today. It will be the wrong decision, and you will have consequences afterward, right? Not everything we decide is good. Not all of our plans and motives are Jesus-shaped, and yet God works in us. He works in us. Wrong decisions from wrong motivations for wrong goals. It gives God an opportunity to show he is sovereign over wasted opportunities. Even over those. This does not make your wrong decisions right. But it should provoke a thanksgiving that God will take your smeared picture, your stained picture, and form a brilliantly beautiful picture out of it. And this is true because we have a better king than Ahasuerus. I mean, there's some similarity. Here's where the similarity is between our King Jesus and Ahasuerus. God has absolute claim over our life. Claim over everything. Our bodies, our sex life, our career plans, hopes, children, dreams, your next breath, 
He will do what he wills, when he wills, how he wills. And when we become Christians, we are actually brought into a new kingdom with a new king. And when he sees you, he will not allow you to share your loyalty with other things. That's where the similarity stops, though. Because unlike the king in this story, our king is no tyrant. With Ahasuerus, everything was commoditized. Everything was for his pleasure. Our God steps out of pure pleasure to come here with us, live with us for our good. Listen, even when you suffer loss in this empire because you are distinct, even when God takes your fingers and starts to pry them off the things that you have figured out a way to wrap your hands around so tightly, it's because he's preparing your heart more and more to be with Jesus. That's what suffering is. God preparing your heart more and more to be with Jesus and to view and treasure him as the only good in this world, the only good. We're being prepped for a better husband. Esther took 12 months to prepare for this moment. Jesus took 33 years. She had her radiance increased in this preparation time. Jesus had his eternal radiance stripped away slowly over the time that he was with us. It took an unrecognizable and despised, rejected form rejected by those who women came to serve. Esther had comfort, a great place to lay her head. Jesus had no place to lay his head. And his pain was for us to be beautiful. And we're free to enjoy this good above all goods. We're free to enjoy him. I mean, friends, listen, there's great hope for us. There's great hope for us. For those of us who have complied with the empire, bent, concealed, been less distinctive, made bad decisions, had bad decisions made for us, around us, towards us. Esther has implications for the Christian life today. As our feet hit the floor and then we ask the same question, how am I going to be a Christian and an American at the same time? How am I in this place but not of this place? Because we're still in fourth century B.C. Susa. Christians are actually divided on this, uh, you know, being in and not of. I will tell you one thing as a missionary, think long and hard when you extend the gospel and decide and discern what is a non-negotiable of the Christian life and what is a cultural option. That's where the water gets muddy. Probably do classes over that. I think sometimes we'll take cultural options and we'll make them non-negotiables. That's where we become legalists. Or we'll take non-negotiables and we'll make them cultural options and that's where we become licentious. But we have a very, very good at doing both, I'll say that, right? Listen, if you, feel, if you feel a conviction over this, then there's room to repent. All a conviction is, is God saying, what you're doing is wrong. But if you feel a condemnation for this, that's something else. Condemnation is where you hear in your head, you are wrong. You should feel shame. You're a shameful person. That's condemnation. If you feel conviction and God is saying that thing needs to change, that behavior needs to change, then there's room to repent. If you're feeling condemnation, you can leave that at the door. You can leave it at the door because the gospel is perfect for those who conceal their identity. The gospel is perfect for those who bend and comply. The gospel is perfect for those who spend a lifetime making really bad decisions with failed motives for failed goals. The gospel's perfect because God is working through our worst mistakes just as much as our best efforts, and all of it's for his glory. There's room. 
Go ahead and stand with me, and we'll close this out. And we're going to go into a moment of worship musically where we pray and we sing together. And if you're new here or you're a guest, you might see like little chunks of people kind of peel off and go back and take communion. We just kind of do communion freestyle here. So you could do it in the middle of whatever song you choose to do it in. But that just gives you an opportunity to go back there with a roommate or a spouse or your family and take communion together and take as much time as you want to do that. But communion, when you do go back there and take a piece of bread and dip it in a cup, Right? You were effectively saying, God, you were good. God, you were good in this. You were good in this. It's a kingdom meal of remembrance, remembering what God has done and then looking forward to a better hope. One provided because Jesus de-beautified himself so we could be beautiful, and he did not conceal himself from us. He did not. He did not comply with the world. He did not roam the fruited plain trying to win the favor of everybody around him. And we can rejoice because he is good, the only good worth having in this world. And we have more than what Daniel had before him, more than what Esther had. So I want you, whenever you take communion and whenever you sing and you pray, I want you to take all the smudges and the smears that make up your life, right? Your best endeavors, failed hopes. I want you to even consider the impurity of your motivations, even the goals that you have being a little sideways. These moments lived here imperfectly. They are giving God a canvas with which to work with. This is how good he is. He's the only good in this place. The only good in this place which we find ourselves to be foreigners in a hostile land. Providentially, though. Providentially. So let me pray for you. Father, we thank you. And as we go into this time of response, music, singing, prayer, repenting, communion, lamenting, reconciliation, all the things that we do to say, we hear you, Lord. We see you in your word. We see how beautiful you are, and our heart complies to you. Just in this time of response, whether we're in fellowship or taking communion or writing checks or, or connecting with people that we don't know, whatever we do, Lord, we do it unto you. And we say that you are a good and gentle king, not like this king that you were a better groom, not like this groom. And Lord, that as Susa gets darker and darker and darker, your providence does not slip. That everyone in this room was created a certain way and at a certain time and in a certain place. And here we find ourselves sitting in these chairs at this time, at this place, because of the decisions that we have made, the decisions made for us, and the story you were weaving together with the best smudges and smears we could come up with. You are fascinating, Lord, and how you are so providential. Fascinating. And Lord, as we take communion and as we sing, we just pray for a repentant heart, Lord, that you would show us where it is. Where, where are we saying in our own heart of hearts, you don't get to decide who I am, I get to decide who I am. Where in our own hearts, we decide we want to be sovereign, not underneath the sovereign. Lord, that today would be a day that we would say, I don't have to feel condemned because I am in Christ. And Lord, that today would be a day that new hearts would be won. That I know that there are hearts in here, hearts that might even be beating fast now because they can feel the pressure of the Holy Spirit regenerating their heart to hear you anew. A place where they could see their sins, maybe for the first time, and see your grace, radiant as it is. Lord, that you would rescue souls today.
that today new birth is found in this place, that today there would be new members of a better kingdom. Lord, we love you. We're fascinated people with you. We're excited to be called your own. We worship you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.